and welcome back to The Classical Circuit, the podcast that deep dives into the intricate world of classical music and all that comes with working in it. I'm your host, Ella Lee, and each episode I'm joined by a brilliant guest from across the industry discussing their best career high, their worst career low, and other things that give you a different side to the one you might find on their website. My guest today is pianist Farley Pavery, who is also the current head of keyboard at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. And as well as being a really sought after teacher, his career sort of spans everything from soloist to chamber musician, uh, premiering loads of new contemporary works, recording for Guild and Delphian, and also sitting on the jury of many international piano competitions. I find Fali's trajectory so interesting because he grew up in India and actually did a degree in, I think, chemistry before moving to Moscow to study there. That's where his professional musical life sort of kicked off. And somehow along the way, wangled his way into touring India with Rostropovich, of all people. (laughs) More on that later, as well as uh, conservatoires, career teachers and his really random encounter with Horowitz. I had a very small number of lessons with Farley back in the day, just three or four lessons, and they had such a profound impact on me that I still haven't forgotten to this day. So I was really happy to be able to speak to him. And yeah, I hope you enjoy. Farley, hello and welcome. Hi, Ella. Very nice to see you again after a long time. You too. Firstly, congratulations on your brand new position as head of keyboard at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. How does it feel to hold so much power? <laughs> well, it's not so much about the power. It's more about having about 10 times more emails to answer at the moment. <laughs> uh, but no, it's it, it's good because we have a fantastic department and, and my colleagues are all very good friends of mine. It's a rather unusual piano department that everybody gets on very well and we support each other. So it's it's not a kind of a one-man show. It's We do, do it all together. Sounds like some sort of pianistic utopia. It pretty much is, I think. Yeah, it, I haven't experienced it in other conservatoires, I have to say. We, we're all very, very close friends and we meet for lunch practically every day and we go out together a lot and uh, we support our students very much together so it's it's a good place to be you've been a professor there for quite some time now haven't you yes because you were the associate head before that's right what have you observed about conservatoire students especially pianists oh that's a very broad question because they're so different and and it has evolved so much over the years even the nationalities of the people who come um, have changed considerably over the last 20 years but in, in general, I think pianists tend to be quite a boring bunch of people when they're in conservatoires in one sense, because they spend so much time in practice rooms. And I'm trying to encourage them to become more interesting, rounded human beings and doing other things other than just practicing. And not just in terms of doing other things, but also in terms of their own music to, to widen their interests and branch out into more adventurous repertoire and composers that have not been played much or pieces that have rarely played. We're trying to kind of build up a database of repertoire which students and staff can use, which, you know, because we all tend to play the same pieces for the last two, three hundred years. And it's it's vital, I think, to to broaden that that sphere of things. Mm. 
You said you're encouraging students to think outside the box a bit and broaden their horizons, as it were. Do you think the time in which more people could earn a living solely from performing, you know, not needing to supplement with other work, do you think that time is over unless you're at the very top of the food chain? And do you still come across students that have that mindset of, I'm going to become a concert pianist to the point where they don't spend time laying any other foundations for themselves? Well, if there is that mindset, I think they're, they're very naive. Uh, it's kind of pretty obvious that that's a very difficult and rare position to be in, where you can just earn a living playing Rack 2 or Prokofiev 3 and a few kind of classical programs. Uh, there are very few pianists in the world who manage to do that, even at the very top, actually. Uh, you know, there, there are a few maybe, but but not that many. And also, I'm not so sure that's the best kind of way of looking at it when you come to a conservatory. I think a lot of people who come to conservatory don't necessarily even end up doing a performing career at all. You know, I've had people coming, finishing their bachelor's degree and deciding, well, I'm going to become a lawyer or like you, go into the radio or, or do something different, you know. Uh, but I think it's important to know that you don't study music only to become a concert pianist. You study music because it's it's what you want to do. It's, it's what makes you tick. It's what enriches you in a way. And if you go in with that kind of mindset, then you're more likely to grow as a musician than if you just go in thinking, oh, I'm going to learn three concertos and, and four programs and hope to become a concert pianist because it's not going to happen, you know. And as you said, more and more people nowadays need to be able to, to have their fingers in many pies and diversify. And, and one way of doing it is to play different kinds of music, collaborating with different kinds of musicians. We are very lucky because we have, you know, in our conservatory, we have dancers and we have actors and film producers. And, and it's so refreshing to be able to kind of mix all these disciplines and, and come up with something creative. And, you know, imagine if everybody sort of thought a little bit like that, the classical music scene would be so much more interesting than just having to go and listen to another performance of Rack 2. So beyond encouraging them to diversify the repertoire that they're playing, do you at the Conservatoire also encourage students to diversify their skills in other areas, whether that's self-promotion or writing or whatever? Yes, yes, we do. And they, they have specific kind of modules where they talk about how to build a CV, how to approach an agent. We have agents coming in to talk to people, you know, in realistic terms, what it takes to actually get into an agency, what agencies can do in this day and age. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we do have lots of help for them to encourage them to develop their careers in different creative ways. Well, in many ways, that's great, actually. I've got so many peers that studied in other conservatoires across the UK and abroad that felt that they were almost made to feel like they were doing something wrong by showing any interest in something other than just conventional performance or their first study instrument. So that's really refreshing to hear. I hope that we, we succeed in changing. Because you're right, you know, often students get stuck in a practice room and they play one, one program for the whole year and, and, you know, do their exam and then they go the next year and they play three other pieces. And, you know, before they know it, they finish their four years of undergraduate and they've, they've learned 12 pieces and go out into the world thinking that they're going to be a concert pianist and it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And in any case, you know, you need to be so good these days to have a career as a soloist. Uh, 
that realistically, you know, such a few percentage of students will kind of make that, I suppose. But they do, you know, some of them do. I mean, we have we have had students and do have students who we know are going to have careers. Mm. I mean, for example, I have this wonderful student at the moment, Ethan Locke, you might have heard of him. Oh, he was on the BBC, so, right? That's right. He won the keyboard final and, you know, he's totally blind. But he's an amazing talent and he's one of these people who will have a career because, you know, he's phenomenally talented and he's already got lots of concertos and concerts with big orchestras and things. So, And there are others like him, you know, I'm not saying that it's not feasible to do that, but for the majority of our students, they will have to find more creative ways of making a living. You've been teaching at very advanced levels for quite some time now, haven't you? You were at uh, Wells School before, right? That's right, yeah. Uh, And you've obviously been at the RCS for some time. Did you always want to teach at such an advanced level and have that make up a significant proportion of your professional life? Or did you pursue that path initially for purely practical reasons like, you know, earning a living? Uh, That's, again, a, a difficult question because you kind of... Most people in life, they kind of tend to fall into things by luck and, and, and they end up doing things they didn't particularly plan. But in my case, I suppose getting a job at Wells was definitely a practical thing. Uh, I needed the money and it was an opportunity to work with talented young people. And I certainly wasn't making enough money just with concerts to be able to survive. So it was a wonderful lifeline in a way, but also a very interesting musical experience because it's nice working with kids who are committed and focused and talented you don't often get that because you know i remember when i was a student at the academy i used to go around north london from house to house you know teaching kids who weren't particularly focused or or interested and and you know it can be quite a dispiriting experience and then the job in Scotland came up also purely by chance. I mean, I'd, I'd never even heard of the Scottish Conservatory at that time. And somebody just pointed out an ad to me and, and I just thought, why not? You know, I just wanted to change. And, and so I applied and I got the job um, and I loved it. So I stayed. And I, I was very lucky because I managed to still perform and, and do interesting concerts, not just solo, but lots of chamber music and other things. So it's it's... It's been a nice kind of balance, mm. which is the, always the hardest thing to achieve, I think, if, if you do want to continue playing and if you're doing quite a lot of teaching. That's the big challenge. How do you do that? And especially if you're combining that with family life and children and dogs and cats, which I have to do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you really love your job. And I know you've had some really talented students, past and present, Would I be right in saying it brings you a lot of joy and satisfaction to see them going on to do exciting things with their professional life? Yes, yeah, that's one of the wonderful things. And not just, not not only the people who get to play with a big orchestra and, and have glamorous careers, but also people who have managed to make enriching lives in music, doing other things. You know, some people absolutely love their job teaching in a school, for example. Other people like you or have gone on to do other things in media and radio and and, in television. Even the people who have gone on to give up music and do other things, they always come back and say how important music has remained in their lives. And I think that's great that somehow you've managed to enrich them in some way. Can I be cheeky and ask you, 
have you ever had your own self and the furthering of your own reputation as a priority for you when teaching and guiding your students towards all these various accolades and successes? No, I haven't. I can say that categorically. And that's one thing we really, in this conservatoire, we do not encourage teachers to kind of make their students their personal property, as it were, you know. We share most of us, I, I share most of my students with other staff members. And I think that's a very healthy way of approaching teaching, that you don't you don't live off the reputation of your students. And I know a lot of teachers who have done that in the past and who, for example, would get terribly upset if their student decided to change teachers and go to somebody else. And we really, really don't have that problem here. I mean, I, for example, almost never teach a student more than four years, no matter how talented they are. I always, you know, if they're doing an undergraduate and then carrying on with masters, I always certainly give them the option to go to somebody else and encourage it because you know four years is enough i mean what what more can you say to a student after four they probably heard everything you've got to say <laughs> and it's nice to have a different perspective anyway so uh yeah and, and in in a funny kind of way which is completely delusional i suppose because i do earn the majority of my income from teaching if i'm if i look on honestly but i don't somehow see myself as a professional teacher it's really weird because I, I suppose I am. But to me, it's, it's still a sort of a sideline. What do you mean by that? It's weird because I spend a lot of time teaching, but, but somehow for me, practicing and playing is basically the main thing in my head I see myself doing. Mm. And teaching is, is something I do and I really enjoy, but it's just a part of what I do. I, I don't see myself as a career teacher in that sense. I am a teacher in, in many, you know, I have a full-time job, you know, <laughs> but somehow psychologically it feels different somehow. It does make sense though. And I suppose when you're thinking about who you are, there's always going to be certain facets that you identify more closely with. It sounds like you still think of yourself first and foremost as a pianist, a player. I think so, yeah, I do, yeah. yeah. And I, I, some of the happiest time I have is when I'm practising. Maybe because it's such a precious time, because it's so so limited in a way. I'm very lucky because I have, I live in Scotland and I have a, a music studio in my garden with my piano and it's, I can practice anytime at night or, or, you know, don't disturb anyone, which is a real bonus, a real luxury. But I do, do cherish that time and I find it really important to be able to have that time to myself. Mm. Because I also have a very kind of chaotic, busy family life. I have three kids. I have a dog, two cats, a tortoise. <laughs> Do you <laughs> actually have a tortoise? Also, yes. A wife who's also a performing, touring musician. So it's, it's, you know, it's difficult to juggle that and teaching and concerts and practicing. And somehow it sort of seems to work for me. I think I'd be very uh, lazy if I only had just concerts to work towards and nothing else. How do you balance all that? Or rather, how have you honed the skill of balancing all of those things over the years? Um, I haven't always successfully, but I suppose the trick is to somehow be able to practice more efficiently and practice in a way that you take the least amount of time to achieve the most that you can. I also kind of have mastered the art of practicing in, in little bits. For example, if a student doesn't show up, 
I have a half an hour, an hour, and that's great. I, I use that time to kind of do a little bit of work, <laughs> but never enough. There's never enough time, sadly. But that's life, I suppose. Even if you didn't have all those other jobs, it still probably wouldn't feel like enough time, would it? Exactly. And also, I, I suppose that's the other humbling thing about being a performer or a musician is that, you know, you're never, ever satisfied with, with your performance, which is frustrating, of course, but also it's something that makes you kind of challenges you to work more. Mm. Speaking of people that were never satisfied with their own performances, there is a story that I would love for you to tell if you'd be so kind as to indulge me, uh, which was the time that you ended up page turning for one Vladimir Horowitz. Well, that was one, you know, I was in Moscow for almost eight years. I studied there first at the pre-conservatoire college and for two years and then at the conservatoire with wonderful teacher, Viktor Mirishanov who incidentally was a fantastic pianist and he tied with Sviatoslav Richter in the first all-Soviet piano competition. I mean, he was that good, but then of course Richter went on to have this kind of stellar career and, and Marijanov did a lot of teaching and although he was an amazing, amazing musician and pianist, he kind of had psychological issues which maybe prevent him to, from becoming quite the star that Richter was. But anyway, so when I was in Moscow, I mean, I didn't realize at the time, of course, because I was so young and naive, but it was an extraordinary place at the time to be. I, it was there during the 80s, during communism. Although, of course, the whole country was shambles in terms of, you know, there was never any food. It was run by a bunch of buffoons. <laughs> but in terms of music, it was an extraordinary place. And I remember being at the college and, and one day they would just say, oh, somebody's coming to do a concert. Can you come to the hall at one o'clock? And we'd all go there and then Richter would turn up and play a whole bunch of Haydn sonatas and then leave. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing would happen quite often. So cool. Anyway, when I was uh, in Moscow, I became quite good friends with the American ambassador in Moscow, a wonderful man. And uh, he and his wife often invited me to practice in their house because they had a fantastic Steinway concert grand piano. So I used to go there. And then... Horowitz was coming to Moscow for his big comeback concert after God knows how many years. Uh, and it was a sensational event, you know, it was like, like the Beatles coming to London or something, you know, superstar coming back and everybody was so excited. And he was going to stay with the American ambassador in his house. And I was invited to the reception for Horowitz. So I went and I met Horowitz there at the party and we just had a chat because I spoke Russian and I said to him rather, brazenly, uh, would you mind, Maestro, if I came tomorrow and heard you practicing? Because, you know, I know you're playing a different program in Leningrad, and I'd love to hear you play Chrysleriana. And he sort of laughed and said, no, no, it's not, not really possible, whatever. So we left it at that. But the next morning, I got a phone call in my hostel, my student hostel, from his housekeeper, he had his own housekeeper, who said to me, Maestro will expect you at 12 o'clock. <laughs> so, so I turned up in my suit and my tie and everything, uh, very excited. And they said, oh, go upstairs. He's upstairs. So I went upstairs and there was Horowitz practicing on his own piano. And he sort of beckoned me to come and sit next to him. And I went there and sat and turned his pages while he played the whole of Chrysleriana. Uh, it was absolutely extraordinary. And then he played me a few other short pieces and 
showed me a few warm-up exercises and we had a little chat and he said bye-bye and then I left <laughs> so, unfortunately it was before mobile phones were invented so I couldn't even get a photograph <laughs> but it was yeah it was one of these once-in-a-lifetime experiences and then of course I went to the concert in the conservatoire which was just the most extraordinary musical event it's on video of course so now everybody can see that but it was such an amazing atmosphere in that concert. Honestly, such a heartwarming story. And the way it came about is just so, so characteristically quirky of him somehow. I know, it? it's bizarre, isn't it? Here's a question for you. People like Horowitz, Gillels, pianists of that time, the greats that we tend to deify, do you think that same kind of talent and artistry exists today? Or with all of the distractions, like having to constantly self-promote on social media, that sort of thing that musicians are required to engage with now. Do you think that people, by consequence, have less left to put into their music? Maybe in a general context, yes. But I do think that, yes, there are still phenomenal talents out there who certainly can play as well as, as many of the greats from the past. I mean, the general standard of playing is so high these days. It's extraordinary. I mean, you know, forget about talking about the great pianists. We just recently had the Scottish International Piano Competition and I was on the pre-selection panel for it and we had 216 wow. applicants. And honestly, the standard was just phenomenal. I mean, really phenomenal. You know, practically no technical issues and a lot of them playing with such fantastic musicality. In general, I suppose I know where you're coming from that, you know, people say that all pianists sound like each other these days. And, and you know, although the standard is high, there's not enough personality, this and that. But I don't think that's... I suppose I'm coming at it more from an artistic perspective. I don't know. I've, I I think there are great artists out there. Yeah, social media, etc., etc. is distracting. But in spite of that, they manage it. So kudos to them. You know, it's mm. great. And what do you think about competitions? It's a ludicrous kind of thing, competitions, I think. Um, you know, having said that, I was on the pre-selection panel for the Scottish <laughs> competition. So, but I'll tell you a funny story. I, I, about a month ago, two friends of mine, after a concert that Mikhail Pletnyov had given in the Edinburgh International Festival, one of them, very distinguished pianist, wrote this very vitriolic Facebook message saying, oh, this was the worst concert I've been to in my life. And, you know, it was shocking and egotistical and full of uh, random notes put in and this and that. And he absolutely hated everything. He said I had a booed and I left in the interval, etc., etc. Oh, gosh. And almost 10 seconds later, I got another Facebook message from another friend of mine, also a very distinguished pianist, from the same concert saying, uh, words can't express how beautiful this was. I was in tears all the way through. <laughs> so it just shows, you know, how different people perceive music differently. And, you know, there's no one way of looking at it. So finding a winner in a competition is, I just think, an absurd concept. I would much rather invent a competition where you had, you know, six people in the final and, and the prize was that these six people got 20 concerts or signed up with some agent or something like that, you know, to give them a chance to, to play more. But this concept of awarding first prize and second prize and third prize in a, in a competition, is, I mean, it's, it's obviously an absurd thing because the same people could go somewhere else and they'd have a completely different result. It's not a sport. But what do we do? We have 
this it's a way i suppose for young people to get known get a few concerts maybe get a bit of money so i'm not poo-pooing it in 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 any way because it it's a useful tool i suppose for young pianists to focus to prepare programs and to get some profile but as long as they know that you know if they don't win it's not because they're a loser it's because somebody had a subjective judgment about them and somebody else might think completely the opposite Your best career high was, well, you've actually given me two. Uh, so, yes, let's first talk about Rostropovich. You played, I think, eight concerts with him in India. Can you tell us more about that? Well, that was actually a funny story, actually, how it came about. A little bit like this thing with, with Horowitz going up to him brazenly. By now, I was a student at the academy. I was doing a postgraduate after Moscow. And I had some friends in India who kind of well-connected in the musical world. And I also happened to know Zubin Mehta, obviously very famous conductor who comes from the same background as me, from the same city in Mumbai. So I got this message saying that Rostropovich was planning a tour of India. So kind of my ears pricked up. And <laughs> I went to one of his concerts at the festival hall. And I just went backstage after the concert and I approached him and spoke to him in Russian and I said... Uh, I heard you want to go to India, Maestro, and if you're going to India, can I come and play with you? I mean, I'd never do that now, of course, but, you know, when you're young, you do these things. So you would have been, what, in your 20s? I was in my 20s, yeah. I mean, respect. I admire the brazenness. <laughs> I don't know whether it's brazen or stupid or what. But anyway, I went and did it, and he kind of looked a little bit surprised, but he was quite pleased that I was speaking in Russian. And I said, oh, yes, yes, I'm going to India. I want to go, and I love the country. And, this. and I said, so he said... Um, yeah, come, come and come and play for me one day. So, so we organized a time and I'd go and audition for him. So it was again in the festival hall in one of the green rooms before one of his rehearsals. And there was this crappy little upright piano there. And he said, play. So I played a bit of Beethoven and some Prokofiev or something. And he listened and he said, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, good. I'll let you know. I'll think about it. And then a few weeks later, I got a letter from him just completely out of the blue saying, yes, we're going to India. We're going on such and such dates and we'll rehearse in London and then we'll go. And then I remember the first time I went to his, he used to have this little flat in, just off Holloway Road in London at the time. And I went there for my first rehearsal and he opened the door and he was in his bathrobe. <laughs> and he sat and did the whole rehearsal in his bathroom <laughs> which is a bit bizarre <laughs> but I mean good thing he played the cello right exactly yeah. <laughs> and then we had this rehearsal and then we went out for an Indian lunch it was just the most surreal experience you know here he was the greatest probably the greatest musician of of his time you know and I was there as a student you know playing Shostakovich and Prokofiev with him, you know, which he had played with Shostakovich and Prokofiev. It was just, an, uh, you know, one of these experiences. And we played three different concert programs, you know, from Prokofiev, Shostakovich sonatas, Brahms sonatas, Beethoven sonatas, Rachmaninoff, everything, you know, he just knows everything, basically. Uh, so it was quite stressful in a way, because also he didn't re rehearse much. He didn't need to rehearse. So we'd end up and for example we'd go to Delhi and he said oh I want to go to see the Taj Mahal so we'd end up going to Agra you know a whole day trip um, and come back at six o'clock and then there's a concert at the end of the 
day and, and you know so it was quite stressful but you no know, he was an amazing amazing man it's kind of whirlwind of energy and one of these people who knew how to live life to the most just so much enthusiasm about everything he did you know just grabbed everything with both hands and, and lived life to the full inspirational really that must have been so special and in your home country as well exactly and in my hometown we did two concerts in mumbai which which was incredible because that's where i was born and brought up and you know my family was there and, and the whole, it was yeah it was a great experience being at that age and playing with a musician of not just his caliber but his profile as well what was your biggest takeaway from the experience I was just trying to hang on to his coattails for most of it, really. <laughs> but no, <laughs> uh, in the concerts, I mean, it was very special because playing with somebody like Rostropovich, when you're rehearsing with him, you don't really discuss, you know, you don't say, oh, well, I feel, you know, <laughs> this phrase is going this way. <laughs> you basically do what, what, what he wants you to do. Uh, but in concerts, it was extraordinary because, you know, he would do things so differently from rehearsals, you know, on the spur of the moment. And he would be very respectful in a way of your musicianship. And he'd, he'd kind of follow you when he needed to. And I don't know, although although you always felt that he was the great Rostropovich and you, uh, well, I was a nobody really. But in the concerts, you, you sort of felt a certain energy where you were almost kind of his equal. And that was an amazing feeling to have. And also, I think I learned a lot from him just generally about how to kind of be in the moment, do things absolutely with total focus in whatever you're doing, whatever it was, you know, when he was playing, he was absolutely, totally committed and focused to the music. But when he was with friends or drinking, he was, you know, having the greatest time of his life. And he had this ability when he met people of always making them feel special always kind of engaging, making them, even if it wasn't necessarily always, uh, you know, like, for example, he, he, he would hug some diplomats, some ambassadors, oh, my great friend, and give him a kiss. And, and then he'd turn around to and say, who is he? But still, he'd make that person feel so special, which is a great kind of ability to have, I think, of that kind of warmth radiating from him, which was incredible. Was there anything about his character that particularly surprised you? I, I was surprised by his his energy, actually, because he wasn't a young man, you know, uh, and yet he he had the energy of a little boy, you know, he'd run around from there, always always full of this. He always he said to me once that you know one piece of advice I'd I'd give you that you know what I'd try to do every day in my life I try to find some one thing new, one thing interesting that I've not done before whatever that is, you know, whether it's seeing a picture or... He, he was just kind of full of life, really. Very briefly, Folly, I'd like to touch on the other career-high moment that you gave me, which was a small solo recital that you did in Scotland uh, for children with Down syndrome. Um, could you tell me about the concert and why it was so special? It, it was somewhere, I think, in a place called Dunkeld, which is this tiny place in Scotland. And I was asked to go and give this little concert. I was just told it's in a school. So I went there and I played this concert on an upright piano. And it was for children, all of who had Down syndrome. And it was the most extraordinary experience I've had because 
they listened with such awe and, and warmth. And after the concert, they radiated this joy of, in the music they had heard. And it came and they hugged you. And, you know, it was such a warm atmosphere. I've never forgotten it. And I thought, if only, you know, you went to the festival hall and did a concert and people reacted in that way, <laughs> life would be so good. Because they had this kind of innocence about them where they were not afraid to show how the music affected them. And how did that affect you? Did that change your relationship with music at all? Well, it kind of reaffirms, doesn't it, that what you do is, is important. It is important not just to the concert goers at the Wigmore Hall, but it's important to so many people, which is why, you know, even initiatives like Live Music Now, for example, are so, so important, I think, because it brings music to people in old people's homes and hospitals and schools, and they, they're not going to go to the Wigmore Hall to hear a concert. And yet they get to hear high quality music and, and it really affects them in wonderful ways, you know. I've had students going into old people's homes and they've come out saying, oh, you know, they were so, so grateful that we had come and they had such a great time and, and you know, they were dancing after the concert. And, you know, it, it's a wonderful thing to do, I think. Music is for everybody. Your worst career low happened while you were still a student in Moscow and you had a memory blank during an important concert. Yes. I've been there. Um, can you give us some context? Well, I was in my, I think I was in my third year at the Conservatoire and they had this celebration concert. I can't remember what it was for. I think it was some anniversary of the Russian Revolution and they had this concert in one of the halls in the Conservatoire and it was a big deal and I was very honoured to have been selected as a student to play for it and in the hall was every single piano professor from the Moscow Concerto was sitting in that hall and I perhaps stupidly chose to play the Prokofiev Seven Sonata which they all obviously know very well and so I started it I was very nervous and in the second movement, I played the first page. If you know that sonata, the first page is the kind of slow theme, and then it develops. It's this fantastic development. And then this last page where the theme comes back. So I played the first page. I reached the end, and I just, I don't know what happened. I just froze. I just didn't know where I was. I didn't know what came next. So I kind of stumbled a little, and then I just literally skipped the meat of that movement, <laughs> the whole kind of development section, and went and played the last page and, and, yeah, just missed out four pages and then went on to the last movement. Somehow finished the piece and then came out and I just thought, this is the end of the world. What am I doing? You know, I just wanted the world to swallow me up and I was so upset. And then my teacher came backstage and, and I was thinking, this is it. You know, it's going to throw me out of my class. And he just came and he shook my hand and he said, oh, thank you very much. And he said, that was an interesting addition. <laughs> and then he left it at that. He never, ever mentioned it again. So I was very, very grateful to him for not making such a big deal out of it. Oh, what an amazing man. What a, yeah. what a brilliant way to handle that. I know, I know. But no, it, was, it wasn't one of my best moments. But men, I suppose there have been many low moments in anyone's career. You know, you're never satisfied with what you do and things go wrong. Sometimes it's quite fun. I remember a concert we did with a piano quartet once and we had this 
page turner from hell. This rather elderly lady who was turning my pages and we were playing this quite complicated piece. It was the piano quartet by William Walton, which is quite difficult and, and you know, very fast and energetic. And she just made a total hash of it. She never, ever was able to turn on time. And, and I was a complete nervous wreck by the end of it. The whole piece was kind of falling apart. <laughs> so in the <laughs> interval, I said to the, the first violin, I said, I'm not doing this. And I can't play with this woman turning my pages. Tell her, please, that we're not going to use her. So he went up to her and he said, Madam, we will not need your services anymore. Oh, no. <laughs> <She> was... <laughs> So that was quite a bad experience. But there have been many such such lows, I'm afraid. We've all been there in one way or another, haven't we? But, um, but going back to the memory thing, what are your thoughts on pianists and the expectation to play solo stuff from memory? Let's exclude, you know, really intricate contemporary stuff for now. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I'm external examiner at the Royal Academy of Music, for example, and, and often at the Northern also. And... I know that at the academy, students have to play by memory everything in all their exams, unless it is something very contemporary, which is almost impossible to memorize. Uh, we don't do that in Scotland. We, there is no requirement to play from memory at all. If they want to play with the music, that's fine, because we just thought that if they feel more comfortable and they play better with the music, then, then what's the problem? You know, this is a... This is a modern invention, playing by memory. Nobody used to play by memory before Liszt. And, you know, there's so much repertoire out there. And it's a shame that you restrict yourself because you can only memorize a certain amount of pieces, unless you're somebody like Andras Schiff, who can probably play the complete works of Bach by memory. I think it's up to the person who's playing, really. If you feel that you play better without the music, play without the music. But if you feel more comfortable... Nobody really cares these days, you know. I've seen people playing concertos with iPads, and Yuja Wang just did a concert in London with an iPad. And it, Surely what matters is how you play, not whether you're looking at music or not. But some people do play better without the music, and if that's so, they should play without the music. But if you're going to play without the music and be terrified all the time that you're going to have a memory slip, then what's the point? Mm. If you're watching a concert and someone's playing with a score or an iPad, do you, as an audience member, feel like it creates a barrier of sorts? I don't, know. I know some people do, but I, I don't, know. Perhaps because I, I know how difficult it is and they're playing well with the music, then you forget about it, you know. That's my opinion anyway. I know some people would beg to differ. Uh, and I suppose th the main thing is that if you are playing with the music you should really know it so well that you could play it without the music, but you have the music there because it makes you play better. I mean, I'm not suggesting that you play with the music because you don't know the piece. The music is there because it, it just makes you feel more comfortable, not for any other reason. Okay, Farley, I have one final question for you. And this is our end segment, Closed Circuit. So this question comes from a previous guest. And your question is, which actor should play you in the movie of your life? Now, that's very interesting because I've always been told that I look like somebody. And I can't remember his name, but he's a French actor. But apparently he looks almost exactly like me. But who from people I know who I'd like to play me, I don't know. Maybe one of the Indian Bollywood stars. 
<laughs> Shah Rukh Khan. Have you heard of him? I have actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, but Farley, I'm really happy that we could do this. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ella. Lovely chatting to you. Thank you so much for listening to The Classical Circuit. And if you enjoyed this episode, it would be awesome if you could rate, review and subscribe to the podcast as this helps other people to find out about it. Uh, you can also follow us on Instagram for more updates at The Classical Circuit. And this podcast is also available on The Violin Channel's website, which is theviolinchannel.com. Thank you again and see you next time. <laughs>